It's been a crazy year in politics, and in complete honesty, we at We the People have struggled a bit to keep up with it. Between complicated tax plans and complicated assignments, being high schoolers and political commentators has proven particularly challenging this year. So to make up for this recent radio silence during college application season, we've rallied and we're bringing you a full recap of the year of political stories. WTB correspondents have each covered parts of the months of 2017, and I've strung them together and filled in a couple of my own updates. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this retrospective look at the 2017 headlines. I'm Zora Lunga-Reed, and this is We the People. Politics for those who can't vote. Let's get into it with Magella Vada, our correspondent from Ireland. Twenty seventeen kicked off with the Women's March on January twenty first. It was the largest single day protest in U.S. history. In America, between three and five million people protested. One of the most significant marches took place in Washington D.C., where up to half a million people gathered. While the aim of the march advocated for women's rights, reproductive rights, racial equality, and many other causes, most of the marches were aimed at the newly inaugurated President Donald Trump, primarily regarding sexist or offensive comments and actions he's made in the past. Public opinion for Trump at that time was poor. He broke the record for the fastest majority disapproval rating ever in just eight days. He seemed unimpressed with the march, and assumed that the many people who showed up had not voted in the election. Later on, he backtracked on this and tweeted his respect for others to express their views. Celebrities and activists presented at the rally, from Scarlett Johansson and Madonna to Kamala Harris. Gloria Steinem spoke as well. She said this uplifting comment. Our constitution does not begin with I, the president. It begins with we, the people. In February, Michael Flynn, President Trump's national security advisor, resigned, saying he hadn't provided complete information about a phone call with a Russian diplomat, Sergei Kislyak. This action was the main event that kicked off the ongoing investigation into the White House's ties to Russia and any election meddling. In national news in February, questions about the Republican Party and conservative ideology continued to surface, following a spike in hate crimes post-election and the widespread dispute of Trump's party affiliations. I interviewed Judah Waxelbaum, a member of the Teenage Republicans organization, about his thoughts on Trump and the Republican Party in general. You can find that episode on our iTunes page, but to spark your memory, here's a clip. We need to give President Trump a chance. Um, these protests, these marches, they're perfectly fine as long as they're civil. But this idea that every time President Trump takes a breath, needs to be met with a boycott or a protest. I- I'm sorry, but it's a bit absurd and a ridiculous. I know I've said that a lot today, but like the idea that our president needs to be met with force at every turn is... It's a waste of energy. Um, I think that the president is going to do the best of his ability to do the best he can on every situation. And we need to see how things play out. You can hear the rest of Judah's thoughts in A Young Republican's Take on the Politics of Today. Now, here's Mohammed, our correspondent and social media editor from California, reporting on a story from March of this past year. Arkansas says it will execute seven death row inmates by the end of the month. Why the rush, you ask? The lethal injection drugs are set to expire. Let's take a look at the controversy. Though the death penalty has been dormant in Arkansas for almost 12 years, these would be the first execution in that time. 
the lethal injections have put the state at the forefront of the debate about capital punishment as it becomes less and less common in the United States. Fewer states are putting condemned inmates to death, and public support for executions is declining. Authorities are struggling to find the drugs used in lethal injections because a lot of drug makers are objecting to the death penalty as the use of their drug. Arkansas hasn't executed an inmate since 2005, but that's about to change. Seven men are being put to death over the next 10 days. That's two people every other day. Why, you ask? The drug used in lethal injections, they say, is set to expire. Lawyers for the condemned say the rush undermines due process for victims. Victims' families say they would have waited long enough for these killers and criminals to be killed. But without a doubt, it is simply unprecedented and unacceptable for the governor of Arkansas to execute almost eight inmates in a span of 10 days. One Arkansas resident wrote USA Today, quote, In my home state of Arkansas, plans are underway for a spectacular legal train wreck starting next week. Governor Hutchinson has signed death warrants to execute eight men in 10 days, something not even Texas, with its vaunted assembly line, has ever attempted. Indeed, no death-happy state has ever dreamed of eight kills in such a short time. Arkansas is the first in modern American history. A Harvard study brings up the other question. Are inmates mentally fit to be executed? And in this particular case, the Fair Punishment Project says they are not mentally fit or competent for an execution in the coming days. Because of the severity of the situation, Governor Hutchinson has declined to comment. And Rob Smith, executive director of the project, said that if this governor continues to go on with this plan, he's endangering the lives of these inmates, and he's endangering their mental health and the mental health of so many citizens of Arkansas and around the nation. Because nobody is questioning whether people who commit some of the most serious offenses in our society should be held accountable. The underlying question in this debate is do people who are among the most broken, vulnerable, and impaired in our society deserve the death penalty? And whether you are opposed or for the death penalty, that is a question that everyone should ponder. Because should we change the death penalty and have life and parole for these citizens who are committing horrendous crimes? Many in the scientific field says the death penalty is ineffective and doesn't adequately punish people. It is reminiscent of a draconian time in American history and should not be used anymore in the future. Luckily, in April, Arkansas's speedy execution plan was overruled by the state Supreme Court, and about half of the executions were blocked. But the headlines just got more intense as the month wore on. First, the final seat of the Supreme Court was filled via Congress's nuclear option in early April by conservative Neil Gorsuch, tilting the scales in favor of the conservative side. That same day, the U.S. went ballistic, firing 59 Tomahawk cruise missiles at air bases in Syria. To get more details on that explosive 24-hour period, check out our April episode, How the U.S. Went Nuclear and Ballistic in One Day. Later in the month, Trump invited Philippines President Rodrigo Duterte to the White House. Duterte, a known authoritarian leader, has been accused of extrajudicial killings of suspected drug lords as part of his very bloody and highly criticized war on drugs. As we now know, this was just the beginning of Trump's close and strange relationships with authoritarian rulers. Recall Rocket Man. Lastly, April 25th marked Trump's first 100 days in office. He slid in with the lowest approval ratings of any president in modern history, with fewer accomplishments than his predecessor in the first 100 days. Could he turn it around in May? Here's Alana Cross, our correspondent from Arizona, to tell us. May 
The month of Comey and Kofefei was definitely one filled with scandal and controversy. First, in the shocking and unprecedented move, President Trump fired the director of the FBI, James Comey, who was a top official leading a criminal investigation into whether Trump's campaign colluded with the Russian government in effort to influence the outcome of the 2016 presidential election. The intention of the president in his decision came under scrutiny as later... Comey testified to Congress that prior to his firing, he declined an assurance of loyalty to President Trump and failed to give in to pressure by the president to cease investigating General Flynn. Trump's dismissal of Director Comey could support obstruction of justice allegations against the president in the continuing special counsel investigation led by Robert Mueller into possible collusion between Russia and the Trump campaign. And second, on to a more humorous note, let's move on to the Kofefe incident. The president tweeted out one of his incomprehensible midnight rants, but this one was even more absurd than his tweets frequently about fake news, Hillary Clinton, and China, or China as Trump would call it, that we've grown used to. It read, despite the negative press, Kofefe. Overnight, Kofefe took the internet by storm. Everyone from Jimmy Kimmel to even Merriam-Webster Dictionary's Twitter account was attempting to decipher the meaning of the made-up word Kofefe. People were purchasing Kofefe license plates, coming up with jokes and conspiracy theories about its origin, and rushing to sell apparel with Kofefe printed on it. By the morning, Kofefe was not just one of the top Twitter trends in the U.S., but also in other countries throughout the world, while Kofefe was just an embarrassing and funny misspelling. The increasing use of social media, specifically Twitter by the president, has serious implications. Now social media used by governmental officials is not to be taken lightly, as it has real legal bearings, such as evidenced by the use of Trump's tweets as evidence in the legal battle concerning the travel ban. Additionally, Trump's apparent lack of thought and care into what he tweets has the potential to have severe consequences for both United States relations and foreign policy. And then school was out and summer began. June was marked by James Comey's riveting testimony and Trump's decision to leave the Paris Climate Agreement, which was met by widespread international criticism. Even with temperatures rising, both those of the globe and those of New York, Trump didn't cool off his hunt for voter fraud. He formed a voter fraud commission that month and requested each state for personal information regarding its residents, including names, addresses, and voting history. Many states declined, and recently, some of the commission's sketchy inner workings are being brought to light. Then, in July, former Sheriff Joe Arpaio was convicted of criminal contempt for continuing to racially profile civilians and detain them after a court order was filed against him. The sentence began a battle between Trump and the courts, with the president trying to pardon Arpaio, an early supporter of his, of his campaign. In October, the pardon was finally accepted, but as explained in the presiding judge's statement, it didn't erase the guilty ruling. Trump's cabinet and close advisors also flipped around in July, with Sean Spicer, the ever-caricatured press secretary, resigning, and Reince Priebus, the chief of staff, being pushed out. John Kelly replaced Priebus, and Anthony Scaramucci replaced Spicer then. But only a week into both men's new roles, Kelly fired Scaramucci and replaced him with Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Oh, and that's not all for July. Trump, taking to Twitter as usual, also expressed an intention to ban transgender individuals from the military. While this was a pretty short-lived idea, the Pentagon took no steps to enforce it, and in November it was blocked by a federal judge, we did talk to Seb, a non-binary Australian teen, about his thoughts on the suggested ban. I have so many things to say and so many emotions I'm feeling right now. I want to rant, but I also want to cry. 
also want to be reassuring and hopeful. I'm not going to say I'm not going to say much, and I think I'll sleep on it. But I say this to my trans siblings: we are not dis- disruptions. We are not nuisances. We are not burdens that cisgender people have to deal with. We are not subhuman. We are not mentally ill because of being transgender. We are not sexual predators. We are not unworthy of love, happiness, kindness, respect. We are not worth unworthy of being human beings. Please, if you take away anything from this, my trans friend, my trans sibling, is that you matter, and you exist, and you are beautiful and amazing and real and honest and brilliant in every way, shape, and form. You can hear the rest of Seb's interview in a non-binary teen's take on Trump's trans ban. Now for August. As the summer finally ended, a storm was brewing. In the White House, Trump did the cabinet shuffle again and fired chief strategist Steve Bannon. On his way out, Bannon remarked that the Trump presidency, in terms of his Breitbart-fueled alt-right movement, was over. Dun-dun. Meanwhile, the real storm, Hurricane Harvey, devastated Texas. It has been dubbed the costliest storm in history, and its effects continue to harm Texans who lost their homes in the storm and are now subject to a freezing winter. Trump donated over a million dollars to the effort, and many average Americans came out to help and support the victims of the storm. But experts warned that this is only the beginning. Superstorms are another figment of rising global temperatures, and it's only a matter of time before they become even more frequent and devastating. Okay, back to Muhammad for September. Colin Kaepernick, former San Francisco 49ers player, was the architect behind the Take a Knee movement during the national anthem. Players took a knee to protest police brutality and systemic racism. As a result of this, Kaepernick was ousted from the NFL, and many players began to take part in the protest to continue his legacy and what he was fighting for. Despite protests being a fundamental American right and value, many like Donald Trump were outraged and referred to the protest as un-American and the protesters as, quote, sons of bitches. The Trump presidency has long tested institutions like the courts, news media, and business community. Now, in the eyes of many, it is the NFL and NBA's turn. The president is embracing an us-versus-them ideology. He is embracing conflict involving politics, patriotism, and popular American pastimes. And there is an unmistakable racial element at play, since he is targeting prominent African-American players. Many like sports commentator Jamel Hill has called Trump's actions the actions of a white supremacist over his continued degradation and negative treatment of black players and black celebrities. But NFL protests weren't all that occurred during September. President Trump was also widely criticized for his lackluster response to Hurricane Maria and Puerto Rico. Trump took weeks before sending aid and criticized the Puerto Rican people for, quote, wanting everything. When Trump ended up visiting Puerto Rico, he threw paper towels at a crowd of citizens like it was an episode of Oprah. Puerto Rico has been without electricity for almost four months, and Donald Trump has done almost nothing to restore the nation's electric grid. His nation was embroiled in scandal after they awarded a $300 million contract to fix the Puerto Rican electric grid to a close friend of the administration. Amid all of that, on September 5th, President Trump had Attorney General Jeff Sessions announce the administration was rescinding the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, or more commonly known as DACA. DACA protected hundreds of thousands of children brought to the U.S. illegally, but had no say over the matter because they were under the age of consent. By rescinding, Trump satisfied his base because he fulfilled promises of being tough on immigration and tough on illegal immigrants. Trump said that by rescinding this, he was helping the American people and was protecting our borders and by in turn was protecting the American people. The Dreamers account for 800,000 members of the population. 97% are either in school or in the workforce. 
the highest rate of immigrants working in our society and, according to The Economist, make a lasting contribution to the United States, and without them, our economy would be in a free fall for a period of time. Because over 5% of dreamers own their own businesses. They are entrepreneurial with an entrepreneur mindset. Dreamers make a lasting contribution to the United States, and those on all sides of the political trek spectrum are in agreement over this. But President Trump has chosen to rescind this phenomenal program, which helps so many young citizens in this country achieve a better life for themselves and their family members. Next up is Megan, our correspondent also from California. October was a pretty heavy month for news from beginning to end. The night of October 1st, Stephen Paddock opened fire on a crowd at the Route 91 Music Festival, killing 58 and wounding 546. The event was one of the deadliest mass shootings in American history and opened up a nationwide discussion about gun control. Legislation banning bump stocks, a gun attachment used by the Las Vegas shooter allowing the gun to fire like a semi-automatic weapon, was supported across the aisle, but no actual gun control laws have passed so far. Ultimately, with gun violence so prevalent in today's society, we're going to need a lot more than thoughts and prayers to solve these problems. Then, on October 5th, the New York Times published an article exposing Harvey Weinstein and his decades of covering up allegations of sexual harassment. A massive amount of women spoke out against Weinstein as a result of the article, revealing the rampant sexual assault that exists in Hollywood. In turn, more and more victims began speaking out about harassment that they've faced, ultimately beginning the hashtag MeToo movement when actress Alyssa Milano wrote a tweet saying, If you've ever been sexually harassed or assaulted, write MeToo as a reply to this tweet. However, the movement actually began 11 years ago from activist Tarana Burke, who wanted to bring awareness to survivors of sexual violence. To this day, Victims are still speaking out about any sexual harassment that they faced, causing men in power, such as actor Kevin Spacey or Senator Al Franken, to step down and ultimately be held accountable for their actions. Here's Io, our correspondent from North Carolina, with November. Happy New Year's, and this is a recap on November news from 2017. One November issue was a slave trade in Libya. This political news hit Twitter first and spread worldwide to many people. It was a shock that people were still being enslaved in this world. Many were shocked because of what they had heard about the horrific things occurring in the slave options in Libya. Many of the people enslaved were immigrants going to Europe to escape problems in their former countries. Countries in Africa have stepped up to help ensure that the people in Libya who have escaped the slave owners are taken care of and are trying to get as many people enslaved out as possible. People in America are as trying their best to remove slavery again with starting GoFundMes and reaching out to those who have escaped to try and help reform this problem. On another note, the campaign of hashtag MeToo was a major trend in November leading to December. This campaign was to raise awareness of the women and men who had been affected by sexual assault and harassment. This gave people a chance to speak about these issues over a big social media platform, Twitter, and to spread awareness on ways to work through it for those who had been affected. Many people had tweeted the hashtag MeToo to tell other people affected how they weren't alone in going through the pains and effects of being harassed. This brought women and men together to speak on a very important issue. Lastly, rounding out the year, we have Michaela, 
our podcast editor and correspondent from New Jersey, with this past month's headlines. In late 2017, the American political system was again rattled by the Trump administration. This time, a new tax plan had been proposed. Finalized in the last days of December, the tax plan promised to affect people at every income level, high and low, though the left and right differed on their predictions as to how it would affect Americans. Business Insider reported healthy tax cuts for low-wage workers like fry cooks and cashiers, while CNN claimed the tax overhaul is just another scheme to benefit the rich 1%. Also occurring in late winter of 2017 was Alabama's special Senate election between Roy Moore and Doug Jones. Roy Moore was most in the spotlight due to the high volume of sexual assault allegations directed at him. However, as Alabama historically was a red state by overwhelming majority, early polls predicted Moore to win despite his mysterious past. The polls turned out to be wrong. Due to a large turnout of African Americans, Doug Jones won by just 1.5%. This election was especially important in 2017's politics, as a vote for Jones not only meant support for the Democrats, but also for the Me Too movement that fueled women to speak out against Moore's ugly history. And that's a wrap of 2017 and of this episode. From everyone at We The People to you, dear listener, we wish a very happy new year. May your 2018 be filled with fewer shocking headlines and more supportive hashtags, and definitely more We The People episodes. Our resolution as a team is to bring you more high-quality content in 2018, so stay tuned to iTunes, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, anything. Thanks so much for supporting us this year, and see you next year. is hosted by me, Zara Lungerreed. This episode was edited by me, recorded by the entire WTP team, and produced by me. Special thanks to everyone who bought socks, liked our Facebook page, and or followed us on Twitter this year. Spread the word. We love you guys. Thanks so much for listening, and as always, have a great week.